Before we start this podcast, I want to definitely remind you of a sponsor for Fresh of the Word, 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest. In a world of wrestling where there's hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads, don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. So if you'd like to discuss a possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or even Zubaz, then drop them a line at 20by20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20apparel.com. And also check out their enamel pin line. It's super cool. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bummy, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yell about it though. You see me shining like a suit on puffy. You know my grindin' shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kids, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Hey, welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier, and this is episode 184. And my guest for this episode is Stephanie Phillips, who is a comic book writer living in Buffalo, New York, who has worked with an array of comic book companies such as Image, Dark Horse, Aftershock, Black Mask Studios, Omnibus Press, and many more. Her recent titles include Kicking Ice for Omnibus Press, Descendant for Aftershock Comics, and Devil Within for Black Mass Studios. And she is currently writing Butcher of Paris for Dark Horse Comics, which the f- first issue is slated for a December 1st release. Aside from comics, Stephanie is a professor of technical writing at the University of Buffalo and completing her PhD in rhetoric and writing. During our interview, Stephanie shared with us the story behind the making of Kicking Ice, Descendant, and Devil Within, along with the fundamentals of a writing and collaboration process. And we also talked about the basics of technical writing and what it takes to break into that avenue of work. So without further ado, let's get on to this interview with Stephanie Phillips. I saw that you were getting your uh, your hair did earlier on today. Uh, I, li- <laughs> I like the purple color. Thanks. Yeah, it's been, it was purple for a really long time, like years. And then um, I bleached it when I got to Buffalo and... Uh, finally grew it out enough to, to just get rid of the blonde. <laughs> <laughs> when, um, yeah, at the, at Motor City Comic Con, I did, uh, pick up all the issues of your, uh, your book Devil Within and, uh, really enjoyed it. And then I just, uh, picked up the first issue of Descendant from my local comic store. I was actually just reading it just before this, uh, 
um, <laughs> just before we started here. And um, no, yeah, the first issue was great. So uh, let's talk oh, about you. some of the things that you've been working on. Um, you have a few comics out. So uh, let's first talk with uh, Devil Within. You know, what was sort of your idea going into writing that? Um, so the idea was really to, to kind of do two things. Uh, the surface level story is a possession that takes place in the Philippines, kind of filtered through the view of Sam, who is an American living over in the Philippines. Um, and the story actually came from one of my best friends and sparring partners. Her and her wife are from the Philippines. And this kind of started with... Uh, one day she was like, did I ever tell you about the time my girlfriend was possessed? And I was like, no, I don't think you did. So <laughs> please elaborate. Um, <laughs> and then I, like through her, I learned a lot about um, just kind of the way that her and her family view possession and death, which I thought was a really interesting perspective um, that at least I don't share or haven't really been uh, open to the idea of like ghosts and things like that beyond wishing the safe puffed man would like kind of come down the street, which would be awesome. Um, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I really believe in, in that kind of stuff. So on the surface, it's a horror story. It's a possession story. Um, but really um, I wanted to do something a little bit more like nuanced with the relationship between the two main characters uh, who have a very unhealthy relationship, which it doesn't help things any when one of them is presumably possessed. So that's kind of kind of the jumping off point for for that story. When you hear this story from your friend and you learn more about it, you know, about how they perceive possession and whatnot, you know, what sort of uh, did you uh, go through any, you know, do any other research into it? go down any rabbit holes to find out more information. How did you sort of try to make this as authentic as possible while, you know, also bringing in some things that you, you know, you might already know about? Right. I, I did a little bit of research just in terms of like uh, really interesting stuff, like news articles. So at some point, like I found a news article that was like a uh, school was closed down because too many kids were possessed. So they had like a possession day, which I'm from Florida and we have a lot of hurricane days. And now I live in Buffalo and there are snow days, but I've never had a possession day and I'm, I'm a little jealous. So um, next time school gets shut down for possession, I will be there to celebrate possession day. But um, I don't think that's something that in the U.S. we really, I don't know, I just can't imagine anything in the U.S. being like, nope, too many ghosts can't go to school today. <laughs> like that's, and I, I don't mean to seem insensitive to what anybody else believes, because I mean, certainly there are people in the U.S. as well and all over the world that firmly believe in, in that kind of thing. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'm a little jealous that I don't believe in it because it seems kind of interesting. But, um, but I also didn't want the story to be about being filipino so you know the main character is american um because i i couldn't write a story about what it's like to be filipino and really believe in those kinds of things so the story is really more about the relationship and um the setting is something that's out of place for our american main character like it's uh you know living away from anything you know and recognize is always tough now let's add possession, ghost stories, failing relationships, and it gets a whole lot harder. And when you don't speak the language as well. So there's some kind of lost in translation issues going on with her. What's sort of the, you know, in the simplest terms, what is possession in regards to the Filipino people? Like what, what, what constitutes that to where a school can get closed down? 
<laughs> um, so her explanation of it was, because um, I, I asked something very similar. I was like, so how do you know that she was possessed? Like, what were these telling signs? And um, she said that her voice completely changed and she was talking as if she was another person, like talking about memories and people that aren't hers. Um, and that she suddenly possessed some kind of inhuman strength. So like when she went to try to help or like touch her girlfriend, her girlfriend suddenly was like, like almost like when you get uh, strength like from adrenaline and stuff, like yes. she was able to push away my friend who is uh, much bigger and stronger um, and things like that. So um, she said it was very spooky and led to months of just, you know, sleeping next to somebody while being terrified. Like, are, am I going to wake up in the middle of the night and have this person like go back into this weird like possession or whatever was actually happening? Um, so, I mean, again, I think that the main thing, while a possession is interesting, the main concept I really wanted to explore is what is it like sleeping next to somebody and being terrified of them every night? Um, and so that brings into it, in a much more subtle way, I think a lot of um, issues with abuse. And so I, I do not believe that the two characters in this relationship have a healthy relationship. Um, it's very emotionally toxic, and it's formed through the guise of possession. Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to kind of ask you next, like, kind of expand on, like, the parallels of, like, this idea of possession and how it sort of parallels with things that maybe we understand more, that's maybe more normal to our status quo here in America, you know, and you talked about just, you know, toxic relationships and abusive relationships, you know, you know, kind of expand more on like the parallels that maybe, you know, our side of the world would understand. Yeah, I, I actually had somebody the other day who finished reading the series and called me and they were like, wow, Sam is a really shitty character. <laughs> I was like, yeah, she doesn't apparent like she doesn't seem that way at first. And then the more you get to know the way their relationship is structured, she's really not open to anything that her, her girlfriend or her fiance is going through. She's um, completely dismissive. At some point we see her potentially forming a relationship with another woman. And um, so, it, I, I mean, I really think that the, the person in this story that you should be afraid of is the uh, toxic, abusive person in the relationship that doesn't support you, isn't willing to think that um, maybe you should have some kind of support system in your life if you think you are being possessed or if you think you're seeing ghosts <laughs> or something maybe much more mundane than that. If you say I'm going through something, you need a partner that supports you is, is really the message there. And Sam, um, just as, I mean, she's gaslighting the main She's gaslighting Michelle throughout the book. Uh, she doesn't want to see that Michelle is struggling with something. Um, and while that something might be potentially a ghost, <laughs> um, I think that message just kind of rings true for anything you could be going through, however big or small. So um, Sam is, I, I, I don't want to spoil all this, but <laughs> I mean, it's been out for a while. So Sam is really, you know, I think the monster of the series and not the, not the possession element. In regards to the, the artwork for Devil Within, <laughs> you know, what was sort of what what did you want your artist to convey in regards to the story that was being told? Yeah, I really wanted every panel to be creepy and have something going on that was <laughs> that was like aesthetically horrific. 
and uh, man is just the perfect artist for that. I mean, the shadows that he uses are just really unique and cool. So even when it's just two characters talking, I feel like the panel is still really dynamic and um, still conveys that we're in the midst of something horrific going on. And man is just an incredible artist. And I, I mean, I feel like he's, he's going to become what, probably the best artist, really well known for, for his horror work. And I know he's working on some other stuff now that um, I'm sure it's going to be just as gorgeous. Now, going on to uh, another one of your titles, Descendants, you know, what was the story behind, uh, your inspiration behind this story? Um, so, my dad and I read books together a lot and have for a long time. Either he'll finish one and give it to me, or we'll read something simultaneously. And a long time ago, we had been reading a lot of stuff about Charles Lindbergh. And in the ransom notes that were left for the Lindbergh family, there are this weird like circular symbol, which you can find on the cover of the book and also yep. just throughout Descendant, that symbol is kind of all over and it doesn't go away. That symbol is actually the symbol that was found on the ransom letters and nobody really knows what it is or what it stands for. Um, so my dad and I used to play around with like theories, like what could this symbol mean? Um, and so that kind of became a, that, that really was how the entire series started, which is let me structure a conspiracy theory around a symbol that nobody has ever really uh, parsed out or figured out what it what it's for. And sort of, you know, what did you want to like? How you know, without spoiling anything, you know, <laughs> how did you sort of want to uh, you know play around with uh, with that symbol? You know, you know, how many ideas did you kind of have? You know, and what did you want to play around with it? I knew I wanted to connect it to other events in American history. So I really wanted this to be, um, so I, my master's degree, I really focused on early American literature as well as my, my under, undergrad degree. And I just find like some of American history really fascinating, but also really, really dark. Um, so I wanted to do a lot with the literature of, you know, early American time periods um, as well as some of the history. And Charles Lindbergh is, not a not a good dude. Uh, he's got a lot of um, I don't know some stuff that I think is brushed under the rug because we present this this kind of face of American hero who did something that we find patriotic and heroic and adventurous. But he was also an advocate for eugenics and spent a lot of time overseas with uh, Nazis and was not really the American hero that I think a lot of these uh, publicists really wanted to portray him as. So kind of diving into Lindbergh history and developing. From, from the real history of Lindbergh and who he was, and also just kind of exploring a lot of the conspiracy theories around him and his family, his missing child, um, and then also just other uh, events in American history that aren't, that haven't been solved, uh, and just kind of building bridges between those, which is kind of fun. It's like putting together a puzzle that I don't know what the finished product is supposed to look like. <laughs> Well, what was sort of like when you're doing, when you're reading all this type of different stuff, you know, mm -hmm. all these years with your dad and what, what kind of things kind of go through your head? What kind of does to your psyche? What sort of things do you learn throughout the way about <laughs> life? Uh, that I'm a weirdo. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I always go back to my bookshelf I, I, or multiple bookshelves. I've, I love books and I collect them. My dad is a book collector. Uh, usually every year on my birthday, we go to an antique book fair together 
Um, so we have a lot of old books and historical documents and like my dad has a Bible that was shot during the Civil War. So there's actually a bullet stuck in the Bible, wow. um, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Like, I mean, we have some weird stuff in our family and it's always just uh, kind of interesting to go back and like pull from it. So issue three of Descendant features a sermon from a Puritan minister. And I actually had to go develop what does this sermon sound like? And lucky enough, I'm a weirdo and I have books of Puritan sermons. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I like, I don't know who has this or why I have this or what this says about me, <laughs> but it's probably nothing good. So, um, but I was able to kind of take those and pull together elements from these other sermons so that my Puritan minister, everything he says is, uh, you know, pretty authentic straight from the actual documents of the time period. And um, a lot of that language, I think, is dead. So when I kind of read those lines through his mouth, I, I definitely hear and feel like I'm, I'm transported to Salem or, um, or Massachusetts, something like that. So, um, but that's a lot of fun for me. I like playing with historical documents and I, I like exploring different time periods. I have one book that I wrote yesterday where we start in ancient Egypt, uh, we go to the Wild West, and the book ends in like 2019 Central Park. So um, I like that kind of thing. <laughs> I like never being in the same place for too long. Well, I guess if I, if I ever uh, run into something where I'm like, this is weird, maybe I should ask you, and maybe you have a book about it. <laughs> I probably do, <laughs> um, which is, I, I think where a lot of the ideas and things like that come from, I just... Um, I read every day, it's kind of built into my, my schedule every day. And if I ever kind of need inspiration or things like that, I just start pulling books off of the bookshelf. And uh, it's a little like, I, I just want to, I guess, live in a library would be kind of cool. So uh, currently looking for libraries to live in. Do, does it Does it make writing easier that you read so much that you have like, so many different weird things kind of like in your, <laughs> like in your, like just in your vault of your mind, you know, does it make right. you know, coming up with things a little bit easier? Um, I don't know that it ever makes generating ideas easier. That's the part that, you know, if we could nail down what creativity actually is, we'd probably all be rich and famous, but um I mean, I do think because I, I teach writing and technical writing as well at the University of Buffalo, and it's something that I can't enforce to my students enough, which is if you want to write well, you have to read. It just, um, I don't know, I feel like sometimes it's like osmosis. The more you read, a lot of that actually seeps into how we think about writing. And um, I mean, maybe not so much an idea, but the, the mechanics themselves really come from how much we read and spend with other people's writing. So I do feel like that's pretty important for a writer. When seeing the description of descendant on your website, it, it's listed as you have described as national treasure meets X-Files in this <laughs> adventure comedy. Like how, how, like how important was it to like add like humor to this story? Um, well, I think, uh, David, the main character, is really, that's a part of who he is. He's just kind of a goofy person, um, which allows him to be really open to things like conspiracy theories and uh, not being a fully 
functional adult, which earlier today I was just complaining to someone that I feel like I am a terrible adult. Like I will sit and do my work all day long and read books and play video games or whatever else I'm doing. And then I will not do the dishes for like a month. So oh, dude. <laughs> like the scene. Me too. I'm right <laughs> there with you. I'm right there with you. I got to be told like, like uh, my, my friends t- have to like literally like tell me, have you, have you cleaned your, um, have you done the dishes? Have you cleaned your bathroom? You know? And I'm like, yeah. um, it's been a few weeks. It doesn't look bad. Yeah. Oh, come on. It's, I mean, look, my cats are happy, so I feel like it can't be that bad. But I feel like sometimes uh, the scene of like Andy and April and Parks and Rec where they're just eating off of Frisbees and sharing one fork between them. Uh, I've gotten pretty close to that. I've eaten out of like measuring cups and things like that. So. Yeah. Um, I'm not the best adult, and I honestly feel like David is a pretty fair representation of me sometimes. Um, I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I find it interesting, and I read about it, but um, I, I really just enjoy that David is somebody that is enjoying his life. And um, somebody said it the other day, and I know it's a quote from, from somebody in comics, but this idea that if you haven't grown up by 50, you don't have to. And I like that there's a number. Like, if I just make it to 50... <laughs> as a, like, not fully functioning adult, then I'm good. Like, I've done it. <laughs> um, so I, I like that measure. But I think David really kind of lives up to that. He's not going to grow up. And as we start to introduce the actual descendant character who is a child, it's going to, it's really, really fun to write David with a child because David is very much like a child. <laughs> um, so to have them kind of form a relationship is, I honestly think, the most fun part of writing that book. It's interesting that you have a, a character like David, who is this, you know, conspiracy theorist guy, but he's also enjoying his life. Usually those characters are miserable people. <laughs> yeah. And actually, David did start off as a miserable character um, because, you know, I, I do have his ex-wife as a character in the book as well. Yeah. And it started off uh, the the initial iteration of David was a pretty miserable person that worked like a nine to five desk job and uh, he had just gone through a divorce and all this stuff, but it just seemed kind of static. And then David just started getting a little bit more dynamic as I was writing him. And I was like, I think I misthought who this character was um, and kind of went back and started playing with, with his character and it made him a lot more fun. And I think it made it a lot more believable as well to jump into David's world, which is often filled with, conspiracy theories and uh, weird things like that. You have another title uh, called Kickin' Ice. Uh, Talk about that. It is an all-ages graphic novel about girls playing ice hockey. And we did that in kind of like in sponsorship with the National Women's Hockey League. So that one was a lot of fun to write. I have never written a kid's book before, so it was actually really tough. Um, sometimes I would show things to my dad and my dad was like, okay, you may have said that as a child, but other children probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> so <I was> like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> let me, uh, let me rethink that a bit. Um, but that was a lot of fun. And I think that that one has been, um, rewarding in a really different way. Uh, like I, I just got a few days ago, like a drawing, a little girl sent me of, um, like girls playing ice hockey and stuff like that. So uh, my fridge now has some pretty cool artwork on it, and uh, meeting girls that have really enjoyed kicking ice has also been really, really cool. 
you know how you know how important is it to have books like this where even on the cover you have little mm-hmm. girls different um you know different races like playing mm-hmm. a sport like hockey that generally isn't a girl's sport you know how how do you import, uh, how important is it to have something out there that can represent mm-hmm. like girls like that yeah um I mean, growing up, because I I played roller hockey growing up and then switched to ice when I was a teenager. And I and if somebody asked me something the other day about like, oh, how do you find enough girls to play on on a hockey team? I was like, no, no, I was the only girl. (laughs) There were there were no other girls in the league. Uh, So when the National Women's Hockey League first started, I I mean, I was living in Florida, but I paid to go fly out to one of the first games in Boston because it was just it's still like such a huge moment for something that I loved. And I know that I, I don't have the chance to play on those teams and I'm definitely past having that be an option. But for some of these other girls, like the, the kid that drew me this really cool picture that's on my fridge, I really hope she gets drafted to the NWHL. I hope she keeps playing. And that's, an, that's a viable option for her as a career down the road, um, which it wasn't for me. So I mean, it's something that like gives me chills and I will get like worked up over and super emotional because it's, it's just really cool. Uh, and I think that's really the only way I could put it. With, you know, with uh, books, you know, specifically like Kicking Ice and Devil Within, you know, how, mm-hmm. how important is it, you know, as a woman writing these books to have an authentic view on, you know, how a woman can feel and how women can act in comic books and graphic novels? Um, I mean, sometimes I feel like I, I mean, I get asked a lot of questions um, about my gender, especially having written a sports book. And that book was interesting because I, I would talk to a lot of people that weren't in like the comics media. Like that book was on ESPN, which is super, super cool. But the questions I was getting about what it means to be a woman in comics were just kind of interesting and honestly things I had never thought of. Like um, I write a comic and sometimes uh, maybe not so much double with or kicking ice, but there are a lot of things I write where I'm like, I want, I don't want you to be able to say, I know a woman wrote this. I am just writing, you know, a, a time travel story or this historical fiction piece from my perspective. And I guess, yes, I identify as a woman. So that's part of the perspective you're going to get. Um, but like, uh, the book that I have coming out in winter is all men. I'm trying to even think if there is a woman that appears in the book. Um, it's based on a true story. Uh, it's complete historical fiction. It's incredibly dark. There is a serial killer and, uh, a lot, again, a lot of this dialogue and stuff like that is stuff that came from historical documents. So sometimes it is literally these characters that are speaking to the reader and not me. Um, and I think that that's really interesting when I got asked about that. And I was like, I, I don't know that my perspective as a woman lends me anything to write about a serial killer. <laughs> like, a, I, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I know I'm weird, but hopefully not that weird. So, um, yeah, I, it's an interesting thing to think about. And it's something that I think the field is trying to think about more, which is the different kinds of diverse voices that we are now opening the comics industry too. And I think that's great. And because of that, I got to write something like Kicking Ice, which uh, for me was a real dream project to combine two things that mean a lot to me, writing in comics and then also working with the National Women's Hockey League. You know, how, how important is it, you know, what, 
what sort of processes do you go through when writing to really make sure that the voices of these characters are really sort of, you know, saying something impactful, like that you really can make sure that the readers will get something out of it? Um, so, I mean, I guess there is a little bit of me in a lot of pretty much everything I'm writing. Uh, the book that we are soon to announce uh, with that has a serial killer in it. It features a lot of Jewish characters uh, from 1940s. And I'm Jewish. I have family from Holland. And I actually went and did a lot of research into my own family history when I was writing this because I know that, like, my dad was born in Germany. And before that, all of his family is from Holland. So him and his parents were actually the first English-speaking members of his side of the family. Um, and so I actually started going and doing a lot of digging and asking my grandmother to, you know, send me documents and photos. And um, it just kind of opened me to, like, what my family was doing around the time that I was kind of writing in this time period. And it became a lot more impactful for me. So if somebody else gets something out of the story, that's great. But I mean, to be perfectly honest, I wrote it for me. It's something that I really wanted to do and explore. And um, I hope other people end up digging it too. Was there anything, you know, really amazing that you found out when, you know, researching your family past? Um, well, actually, so this is like very specific to my family, but my grandfather, uh, when he was stationed on an airfield in Germany, decided to take up photography, which I was like, that's super cool. I actually went to school on a scholarship because I did photography and worked in dark rooms. And I, but like, I asked my grandmother for some of the pictures and things like that. And it, it was just really cool to kind of see not just other people's pictures that I'm finding on Google image searches, but my own grandfather's like time in the military and living in Germany. These are his pictures. This is his view of the world at this time. Um, and I think that's really cool. And it's one of the reasons, you know, I fell in love with photography as a medium in the first place. Um, so to have those pictures was, was really cool. Yeah, and through those um, pictures, because, you know, a good photographer can really tell a story about a, you know, a moment in time. You know, what did you mm -hmm. learn about about what he was going through through those through those pictures? Um, well, there's one that I, I remember him saying there was like kind of a story attached to it that to get this picture, he had to like climb through some military encampment and then out on a ledge and have another friend like hold his arm so he could lean out at the angle to take the picture. <laughs> and I was just like, so what, what it tells me is the craziness is hereditary. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what I'm picking up from this story. So um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool. I mean, having him launch into, he, uh, he passed away last summer, but having him kind of launch into some stories about, um, you know, people he met in the military was really fascinating. Um, he he did so much stuff in his lifetime, along with being in the military. He was also a chemist. Um, he, like, ended up probably doing what none of us should, and I think he put a chemical in his mouth and burned off all his taste buds. Again, some of the stupidity is probably hereditary, but I love him. <laughs> um, but it just, I, I think it said a lot that a lot of people, like me, my family, we like to try different things, and... Um, explore and I think that I really got a sense of, that he was exploring 
this world. And because of that, I get to explore the world kind of vicariously through him. And I'm using it to kind of help tell this story about this time period as well. One of the things I was talking to you about at uh, the Motor City Comic Con was that um, was your background in, you know, technical writing, uh, because that was something I'm trying to, like, get out of my dead end job right now. And <laughs> I have, you know, vast experience in musical in music writing, um, various publications. And recently somebody had contacted me uh, via LinkedIn and nothing ever happened with this job. But um they were it was about a tech writing job and they just happened to sort of rewrite my resume to highlight my technical writing more so than my current you know or my uh journalism music journalism writing experience more mm -hmm. so than my tech support job that I have right now so it like I was like oh okay maybe this is my way out <laughs> of my uh my dead-end job right now so like what yeah. you know and what I asked you kind of like at the Comic-Con, and I think it would be a good thing to ask right now, is sort of what is the, you know, the parallels that you see with creative writing in comparison to, you know, tech writing? I know sometimes tech writing can be kind of boring because you're trying to figure, you're trying to write about <laughs> a stupid process yeah. or a, you know, a mug or something, I don't know, something very right. mundane. But, you know, what, what sort of the parallels that you see? So my specialty is actually visual communication. Uh, my PhD, my dissertation, I do mostly visual communication work. So like when I, I work a lot with engineers. So um, I mean, I, the best, the most broken down analogy I could give is wouldn't you rather uh, look at pictures or, uh, you know, if you're reading instructions, like I, I guess here's a better example. I give them instructions for origami half the class will get instructions that have just words, half the class will have just pictures. And usually the people with pictures will be able to make the origami, whatever we're making, people with just words pretty much all fail. <laughs> um, and then I have instructions that combine the two. So words with the pictures are far more instructive and clear than just one or just the other. Right. Um, so visuals can have such a huge impact on how we convey information to each other. Um, that working now in a visual field, and I mean, again, like I said, I went to um, school on an art scholarship because I did photography. I've always been drawn to visual communication and how impactful just a visual can be on its own. Um, so getting to actually work in this field is super cool. And I bring comics into the classroom all the time because I'm a giant nerd. <laughs> and uh, turns out most engineers are giant nerds too, and I love them for it. Um, so, you know, having people like... Um, Last semester, I had Dave Johnson talk to my class about putting together cover art and how you think about a message that cover art is conveying to a reader. And then I had students, you know, they were making flyers and visuals and things like that. So thinking through the creative process and thinking through the message of the content is really applicable in both fields. When, and this is something, because I'm, I'm kind of coming from it from, I'm working at a, like a dead end job where I feel like a lot of the um, the corporate culture is a, is really short sighted. When when it when it kind of comes to people going out into a a technical writing field and sort of you know facing those obstacles with their company and in, in, in how to sort of 
convey a process or a policy or something technical, you know, what's your, what's your sort of advice about, you know, how to sort of get through those obstacles in regards to really facilitating, you know, finding out what the best way to write a certain process is? You know, I, I think this is kind of what you're asking, but I, I really feel like a lot of what I do is untrain my students. <laughs> like if anybody has ever sat through one of those like English 101 and 102 classes, which I've taught, yeah. and those are, those are difficult to sit in and difficult to teach because, you know, we're told something like, okay, your students have to write a 15-page paper about X. And it's like, okay, so now every student is writing a 15-page paper. Like, you know, I teach hundreds of students a semester. Every single one of them is usually writing about why weed should be legal. And now I have each student giving me 15 pages about this. And it's just not a productive way to teach writing. And I really don't feel like it does a whole lot for their education. Because at the end of the day, nobody wants you to send them 15 pages about any issue. Nobody's going to read that. Of anything. Nobody is going to. Nothing. I don't want to read 15 pages of anything. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, never. It's, uh, It's really counterproductive to tell students that you have to do this. And, you know, I've been there where you get the page four and you're like, shit, I have to write 15 pages. I guess I'm going to make the font bigger and then like try to like shorten the margins enough so that the teacher won't notice and then write like another paragraph that just reiterates the same thing I've already said. And now it's just a whole 15 pages of fluff that I have to read and grade and give serious critical thought to when I know that they didn't give critical thought to writing it because how can you? So really what I feel like most of my job is, is re-teaching them to think about writing in a different concept. At the end of the day, it has to convey information, and our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter literally by the hour, I feel like. (laughs) And I'm guilty. I have a very short attention span. I have ADD, and I want things very fast, and I want to know things, and that's why Twitter is fun because, or it used to be 140 characters of short content and visuals and stimulation. Uh, So having students really think about shortening, getting things to be as brief as possible while still giving the same impact is Actually, it would probably give more impact to be able to say those 15 pages condensed to at most a paragraph. Um, and that's a lot of what I feel like I do with them is just tell them it's okay <laughs> like, to not have the fluff of 15 pages. Um, I like concise. Concise is good. So, um, I mean, I feel like that's a lot of my job and that's a lot of what I, I try to convey to them um, as engineers and how they can talk to their bosses or clients and things like that as well. And extending on that, how do you feel like a, is there, is there anything that you can tell people to, you know, sort of have, you know, communicate to the people like in a real world job situation Mm -hmm. that maybe being more concise is better You know, if they or having more pictures is better or having (laughs) more or having more communication about a process is better. How do you how do you feel Mm -hmm. like people, whether it's just a engineer or like that regular advisor who's doing like the end Mm -hmm. user things, you know, how you know, what's your advice about, you know, breaking down that communication if there is an obstacle Mm -hmm. with you know, a certain layer of management. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. The reason I think technical writers really exist, I, I worked as a tech, tech writer, not just in a classroom, but I worked at, for a long time, an epidemiology center. And my job was to go between uh, the computer engineers and the biologists because they were doing studies about diabetes in children. And so the biologists were clearly speaking a language that biologists speak. Like, unless you've taken a lot of biology classes, <laughs> that's, that's its own language. <laughs> like, they're saying words, and they're going to the computer engineers, and they're talking in their language. And if you've ever met a computer engineer, you know they have their own language. So <laughs> you essentially have two, two groups of people that are speaking two wildly different sets of language because that's how we train specialties. And so my job was to learn both languages and kind of go back and forth and say, when the computer engineers say X, this is really what they mean. And uh, so it's, it's kind of a lot like being a really uh, kind of like a detailed translator of kind. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the show on HBO Chernobyl yet, but it's fascinating and amazing, and now it is a really good analogy for why we need tech writers, uh, because when scientific information breaks down and fails, and when it's not accurately communicated to the public, you have huge disasters. Uh, the Challenger explosion is another one that we talk about in my class, which is, you know, when information is not communicated properly, there are actual serious consequences, and NASA is actually now a huge component or a proponent of um, hiring tech writers, and they have an entire division of tech writers, which is always fascinating, and I would love to do that. Like, I would actually just be okay being like the coffee person at NASA, so if you're <laughs> NASA, please hire me. I don't care. <laughs> I'm ready to go to space. <laughs> nice. When... That kind of reminds, like, I'm thinking about something when you're talking about, like, NASA and Chernobyl and everything, is that mm -hmm. I feel like in our uh, in our culture now, you know, we have a lot of just people that are in power who make the decisions, mm -hmm. and we look at them, a lot of times we just look at them as being out of touch, whether <laughs> it's our government, whether mm -hmm. it's people, a lot of people in corporations or whatnot, and you know, what do you feel is like how the importance is to have a job like a tech writer, somebody who's like that middleman, mm -hmm. someone who is that translator just in sort of everyday life? What doesn't matter what sort of industry it is. How do you feel like yeah. how important is that? Yeah, um, I mean, especially with a lot of what we're seeing with discussions about climate change, um, you know, there are some parodies of it. You can go look up. There's a really funny video of John Oliver being like, you know, you don't get a, you don't get to make a decision about climate change if you're not a scientist, et cetera, et cetera. And like, he's right. But also, <laughs> uh, like, there, one of the things we talk about in tech writing is that there's something called matters of fact versus matters of concern. And scientists are very clearly talking about matters of fact. Um, and I, I think a good example is like, I'm from Florida and I don't know how much history or like interest you have in this super weird thing where they're releasing genetically modified mosquitoes in the Florida Keys. So there's an invasive species of mosquito that has moved into the Keys and is spreading viruses that don't have um, a cure for them. So the solution is to introduce this, uh, basically a GMO mosquito into the wild, and it will kill off and curb this invasive species. 
the residents of the Keys have put up a huge fight against this. Like they're, I feel like it's, it's a pretty even amount of people that don't want it, but it's enough to where they got the FDA involved. They got like voter rights involved and the science is perfectly sound and perfectly safe. And the problem is you have scientists that are yelling at people, you're too dumb to understand the science. And the people sitting in the audience are like property value, <laughs> which is a matter of fact, the science is sound and works well. And yes, as somebody that like really didn't do well in AP bio, I don't understand the science, so I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. But also there are people that have lived in the Florida Keys their entire lives. They've owned a house that their grandmother used to own. Their grandmother was born in the house. They have a concern that goes beyond the scientific fact. And so this is like a very, <laughs> You've hit on a very weird nerd button here <laughs> talking about this shit. <laughs> um, I actually, when I taught in Florida, um, my students did interviews with a lot of the people in the Florida Keys, and we talked to representatives about, like, why is there a controversy? If the science works, if the science is found and the science is safe, and it's because you have, again, kind of like the two different languages. You have somebody that wants to talk about matters of concern, something that concerns their community and their house, and then you have scientists that are only talking about matters of fact. So a tech writer is somebody, or a communicator, is somebody that really is meant to help bridge different viewpoints and divergent viewpoints to help solve some of these kind of critical issues. Like mosquitoes are one thing. Climate change is a much bigger thing. And uh, unfortunately, we still have people that are like, no, it's not an issue. Okay, cool, <laughs> man. Uh, we're all going to die, but Okay. Okay. <laughs> for somebody like, you know, definitely like me who is, you know, looking for, you know, a career change in some way, like when somebody is stepping in is like sort of pivoting into something like tech writing, you know, do you feel, you mm -hmm. know, what's those first steps that someone should take? You know, should they look to see what tech writing is available out there mm -hmm. or should they look to the things that they to the types of things that they're interested in and see if there's tech writing available within that industry. Yeah, I mean, so coming to tech writing, um, I, like, I mean, it's, it, my PhD is in professional and technical communication, so I don't really know a lot of the avenues into this field. Um, I did, like when I first took the job at the Epidemiology Center, I felt very out of my depth. I was like, I don't know what is expected of me. I hated AP Bio, why am I here? <laughs> and by the end of it, like I had learned to code and I had learned like weird, crazy, cool shit about um, like what science can actually do for children with diabetes. And like, it was kind of like watching magic unfold and I was a very small part of something very big and very interesting. Um, but coming to that, I, I do think it really helps because I also have, um, I have a certificate in professional and technical communication also, which it's not like a fully formed graduate degree. And a lot of schools now offer this in like English departments or communication programs where you can go and essentially take like, let's say four core classes on what is tech writing in the different areas of technical communication. And then you get this like fancy certificate that I guess entitles you to uh, write fancy words at cool places like epidemiology centers. So um, <laughs> <laughs> that helped me a lot because I felt really out of my depth and I got to talk to other people that really understood the field and gave me new ways of approaching communication studies that I didn't previously have. 
Can I extend on that? What's the importance of having those people help you when you're kind of feeling a little like out of your element? <laughs> um, for any field, I think it's important. <laughs> I mean, every day uh, there's like some new self-doubt crisis that I'm sure I have with, uh, with comics. Um, I mean, I've read comics my entire life, but, you know, I, I've never written a time travel story. And now, um, you know, I'm doing that. Or even with the, like the, the historical fiction when I was talking about that comes out in the fall, that one worried me because I, I did so much historical work. Like I translated documents that I got from an archive in France and <laughs> like I spent probably a good eight months doing nothing but archival research in order to write this book and that is like that's my jam let me let me play in your library please um and that was really cool but also it's really daunting to have like this huge historical event that I'm trying to put into five comic book issues and it's like okay am I getting carried away have I done too much of this have I done too little of this uh you know I know more about this event than could ever fit into five issues. But I still, at the end of the day, need to put together a story that spans five issues. And that is incredibly difficult. And I'm very glad that I have other people in my life that have done similar things that can be like, here's what you are doing wrong and here's why you are stupid. And also here's how we fix your stupid. So uh, having mentors in any area is a good thing. <laughs> great, great, great. I always like to end my interviews with the same question, and I gave it to you in ahead of time to think about it. Who is somebody that you could recommend for this podcast that would have some good stories or lessons to talk about? Oh, um, okay. So you, you asked me this yesterday, and, I, and then immediately after, Elliot Rahal sent me um, a, a preview issue of his book, Midnight Vista, which is coming out from Aftershock, and it's about an alien abduction. And first, Elliot is just one of the most interesting people ever, and I love talking with Elliot. Second, he's a really kick-ass writer. Um, he did Hot Lunch Special from Aftershock. He's worked with Valiant, and I can now tell you that Midnight Vista is crazy awesome. Uh, so definitely Elliot Rahal is super cool, has great stories, and tells great stories. Awesome. Great suggestion. Before we get out of here, uh, where can uh, people get more information about about you, where can they follow you online and, uh, and about all the stuff that you'll be working on or have out already? Yeah. Um, so Twitter is probably the best place. I'm at Steph underscore smash. So that was my interview with Stephanie Phillips. More information about all her comics and links to follow her will be in the show notes for this episode at freshesthepodcast.com. And before we get out of here, just want to remind you of a few things. I have two new podcasts premiering real soon. Breaking Records, which is going to be an all-encompassing music podcast, and then also Renaissance Soul, which is going to be more is going to be a Detroit music podcast that has more of a historical tint on it, whether it's new releases or old releases it's always going to have a bit of a historical tint it's going to be specific topics uh, for each episode and to start off we have the big shoes album with big tone that's the album that he did with uh house shoes and i uh, talked to the big tone about that i also have a 25th anniversary of sponges rod and pinata 
episode with the lead singer, Vinny Dombrowski. And then also I have a modern era of the Jazz Collective tribe, um, an interview with uh, Wendell Harrison. So be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout for the the trailer coming real soon. Uh, that'll be, you know, the, all that stuff, more information for both of those podcasts will be uh, up on uh, freshofthepodcast.com. Um, I'm also going to be, you know, the website for Fresh of the Word is going to be turned more into a website in itself with a lot more non-podcast content. So, um, but everything's going to be housed under it. You know, all those, all the podcasts, three podcasts, but we're going to do more music premieres, more premieres of anything. It can be comic books, movies, whatever. Uh, more, you know, mini reviews. I'm going to have some long form uh, essays about things that I'm going to write. Um, it's basically still just going to be me doing everything. I'm not really looking into having other people contribute to the website at this point. Uh, just still just going to be me. Fresh as the word is going to be me. So uh, be on the lookout for all the new changes at uh, freshthepodcast.com. And also, if you want to uh, to support the podcast, you can always go to patreon.com slash fresh of the word. And for as little as a dollar, you can contribute there. Um, I'm gonna be ha- I'm gonna be having a list of things on the website soon, um, in regards to how you could support the podcast. Um, actually, I have it up right now. If you go to freshthepodcast.com/support, there's all sorts of ways that you can donate or help out the podcast and follow via social media. So please go to freshthepodcast.com/support if you want to help out uh, in any way. So. Uh, That's another interview in the bag. Thank you for listening. There's so much stuff coming up. I'm really excited. Goodbye and good night. Fresh is the word.